want to ask you this morning to turn with your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. And as you do that, I want to uh, thank a few people. You know, we've had a really busy uh, week uh, this last week at Eden Baptist Church. And first off, I want to thank everybody, especially Brother Ken and everybody who played a part in decorating our sanctuary. Can we give them a big hand? They did such a great job. And uh, our Christmas parade at the Morris Christmas Parade with all of our children and all the parents who helped make that happen. Can we give them a big hand? And then, uh, y'all can do better than that. Come on now. And then lastly... I want to thank all of the people who served to help take care of over 50 kids this past Friday night for Parents Night Out. Can we give a big hand for them? That is a great ministry to parents. It's also a way that we're trying to grow our children's ministry around here. Uh, You'll get that in a moment if you think about that. So anyway... uh, but uh, we are super, super excited uh, about all that's going on uh, here this morning. But again, as we turn to Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to begin a series here today entitled, Who is the Christ of Christmas? You know, church, as we talk about inviting people to our Christmas programs in the days ahead and reaching out to people, we absolutely should, because if we truly, really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is the Christ of Christmas, how dare we just celebrate Him and not share him. Today, let me give you a little bit of a background on the text we're going to look at today. Uh, The prophet Isaiah's ministry took place uh, among the people of God during a season of the divided kingdom where you had Israel and Judah about 750 years before the birth of Jesus. Like many Old Testament prophets, their messages were not only geared towards the, the working among the people of God at the moment, but was also had a message about the future working of God. Isaiah chapter 9, we see a prophecy given to God's people about the coming Messiah, God's Savior, which we know was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ on Christmas. So much of this prophecy is filled with promises of God's power and great joy about what would happen when the Messiah comes. So look with me, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea and on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now let me pause there for a second and just explain a little bit of that in this prophetic language. Here in these first two verses, we see that two of the twelve tribes of Israel mentioned, Zebulun and Naphtali. Now if you look throughout the history of God's people, they were known as being pretty wicked people. Now all of God's people consistently turned from God, but Zebulun and Naphtali and the places where they had settled had a reputation in those days for being a hub of sin and darkness. However, here in Isaiah's prophecy, he's saying that the Messiah, the Savior, when he comes, is that he would bring light to the dark places. Messiah was going to reveal their sin and bring transformation. He was going to take away their gloom and their anguish. Now, if we go on to the next few verses, we see the same type of transformative power that would take place through the Savior coming into the world. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. It says... You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden on the staff on their shoulders. The rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. 
For every boot of every booted warrior in the battle tumult and every cloak rolled in blood will be for burning of fire. Now it's easy, by the way, when you start looking at this text to see why the Jews thought the Messiah was coming to be a military conqueror. It's how they missed Jesus there at the beginning because he's talking about the Savior was going to be one who was going to break the yoke of the staff on their shoulders. You could easily see that to say, well, one day Messiah is going to overthrow the Roman Empire. And he talks about that he is going to fight a battle on their behalf and that ultimately would bring them peace. But however, this speaks of great joy of the Savior when he arrives. And he likens that joy, he's speaking of something that is spiritual here that's going to take place. He likens the joy that the Savior is going to give them as with the joy of harvest. Three times he said he's going to give them great joy and great gladness. And he likens it to the hope of those days and the days of harvest. Harvest time was not a time of toil and burden, but it was a time of increase and reception. But then if you go down to verses 4 through 5, where he talks about him giving such a great hope because he was going to break the rod of the oppressor. Now, again, they thought that this would have been a governmental thing. What what the prophet is speaking about is ultimately the Savior would break the burden of the oppression of sin by removing the power of sin. And then finally, in verse 5, he speaks about the boots of warriors and their bloody garments will no longer be needed, but they will all be burned. The imagery here is that because of the coming of Savior, the coming Savior in the days ahead is that the war will be over. They'll have no more need for their war-torn clothes, for their boots, but rather they will be burned for fire. But again, he's not talking about a physical war. He's talking about God breaking the burden of sin. Because of sin, we're all separated from God. And because of that, we are never able to find peace. This lack of peace and contentment comes from us being separated from God. And it calls us to always feel like we're fighting for something. Like a war is going on within you. If you remember prior to coming to faith in Christ, you felt like there was an inner turmoil, an inner battle, an inner war that you could never win. However, here the prophet speaks of a day when he will take off our war-torn garments, cast them into the fire because we'll never need them again because a Savior has won a battle for us over sin and he has given us peace. Now, church family, this is what we celebrate this Christmas. A Savior has been given. He has brought light to the dark places. He has broken the yoke of sin. He has given us a path to peace. He has defeated our greatest foe. Because of Christmas, because of a Savior, we can truly sing the words to one of our favorite Christmas hymns that says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Can we just praise Jesus this morning, the fact that we have a Savior? We ain't even started preaching yet this morning, folks, and it's already good. However, this incredible prophecy of our Savior, our coming Christ, doesn't end here. In fact, arguably the most famous verses in this chapter comes from uh, verse 6 where it identifies four names that will be given to the Savior who will be called by those who receive Him. It says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon His shoulders. And his name shall be called, listen to this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. 
Now, there's been multiple sermon series that we could do through the names of God. All throughout Scripture, when we see names given to God, it's important. Because it reveals to us His character. It reveals to us His promises. In short, it tells us who He is and what He has come to do. Over the next several weeks in this Christmas season, we're going to spend a little time on each four of these names given by the prophet Isaiah. And church family, I want to tell you why we're doing this today. I want to tell you honestly that this past Monday, I had an entire different Christmas series lined out. But I believed in prayer and in meeting with God that the Lord reminded me that during this Christmas season is that many people among us, arguably all of us in one way or another, that we may be weary or downtrodden. We may need to be reminded of who our Savior is this Christmas. Who is our Christ this Christmas? Church family, of all the things that we will do this Christmas season, of all the gifts giving and all the parties and all the meals that we would eat, I will tell you here today what we need more than anything else in this world is we need some moments in the presence of God. We need some moments with our Savior. Like the psalmist said in Psalms 84.10, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'm going to say something to you here today. Better is one day in the presence of God than any hallmark depiction of Christmas. What we need this Christmas is Jesus. And so in hopes is that we're going to look at who our Christ is over this Christmas season in these names. So today, we're going to take the first one, which is Jesus is our wonderful counselor. The title of our message today is Celebrating Jesus as Our Wonderful Counselor This Christmas. Now when we think about the word counselor, a lot of different imagery comes to our mind. The first thing that comes to my mind is the first counselors I ever had, which were school counselors. I think about Miss Scott and Miss Henry. How many of y'all know who I'm talking about here uh, today? When you think about what a school counselor does, it's a person who is an advocate for a student. They help them get the most out of their educational experience, helping them set their schedule, navigate big decisions, and address challenges. And they also serve as the first level of therapeutic comfort for a student when they are going through difficult situations in life. The second aspect of a counselor we think about is we think about a counselor, I think about the healthcare realm. These counselors are people who help people navigate various life situations that can be difficult for them to navigate on their own. In these settings, they provide healthy ways for people to process their thoughts and emotions towards right and positive actions. That's why Christian counseling is so important and is great for so many people. Two things I want to time out on here today. If you ever do visit a counselor, make sure you visit a Christian counselor, somebody with a biblical worldview. And then secondly, let me say this to you here today. There's nothing wrong with going to a Christian counselor, amen? Not one of us in this room today that we are bulletproof. Not one of us here today have moments where we are are 10 foot tall and nothing in this world affects us. There's moments we need help and it's okay to visit Christian counselors. And then thirdly, when we think about a counselor, I think about in the judicial realm. Often a counselor in the judicial realm is somebody who is an attorney who is there to help other people navigate the legal system. They provide wisdom and insight for the people they represent for their client's positive end. Now in each and every one of these situations, a counselor is seen as somebody who's there to help, somebody who's there to guide, somebody who's there to advise, and then ultimately it's somebody who has your best interests at heart. They are for you. Now the truth is our understanding of counselor today is not that much different than the understanding of counselor in the biblical world. 
In Isaiah chapter 9, the Hebrew word for counselor here means a, somebody to consult with, somebody to assist, or somebody to give advice. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22, Solomon references the importance of counselors saying, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. In our text today, we find that not only does Isaiah say that the coming Savior would be a counselor, but that he would be a marvelous, he'd be a wonderful counselor. That word wonderful means marvelous, extraordinary, separate by distinguishing action. Essentially, Isaiah is saying here that the Savior of the world would be the best counselor the world has ever known or that they could ever experience. And this is what we can celebrate this Christmas is this is our Savior. And so today, I want to give you three reasons why we can celebrate Jesus being our wonderful counselor this Christmas season. And my hope is that this invites you into the presence of God to go meet with your Savior. The first is this. This Christmas, we should celebrate Jesus as our wonderful counselor because it reminds us that God is for me. It reminds me that God is for me. The picture that Isaiah gives in the verses leading up to this passage about Jesus being our wonderful counselor reminds us that he is a Savior who has come to break the bond of sin on our shoulders, to give grace and light to those who are living in darkness, and to defeat the battle of sin once and for all for all those who would receive them. These truths, coupled with the promise that he would be our wonderful counselor, should clearly communicate to us today that God was doing us good. He came to be our advocate, to be on our side, to be for us. And you may say, Pastor Zach, why is it important for me to know today that God is for me, that he's on my side? And the reason why it's important for you to know this is because it changes the entire way we see God and relate to him. So many people wrongly see God as this perpetually angry God that they could never dare approach because of their unworthiness, our frailty, and our sinfulness. And I would want you to know here today, yes, God does hate sin. And yes, we are all sinful creatures who stir up God's wrath towards us that is ultimately will be poured out on us if we don't receive His grace in Jesus. However, the entirety of the gospel message is that though we didn't deserve it, God did a miraculous work by becoming flesh, coming into this world, in order that we, who were 100% enemies of God, could be provided a pathway unto God. The miracle of the incarnation, God becoming flesh, and the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross for our sin was that God didn't have to surrender His holiness to be our advocates. For, for God to be for us as sinners, he could still remain holy. And the reason why he could do this is because he would still punish sin. Is that ultimately he would place our sin on himself on the cross. And in that moment he could still be fully God and still be fully for a broken and sinful people. Romans chapter 5 verse 10, Paul spoke about, spoke about the ability of a holy God to reconcile sinful broken people to himself. Saying, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And that is, by the way, what we are without Jesus. We are enemies of God. But we are reconciled, which means that we are brought into a good, right standing with God through the death of His Son, ultimately through the cross. You say, Pastor Zach, why does that matter around Christmas? Let me tell you why. Because what we celebrate Christmas is that the manger was the first step to the cross. In Luke chapter 2, On the night that the angels came and proclaimed the birth of Jesus, 
they proclaimed how God was for us. I want you to hear this today. Luke chapter 2, verses 8. It says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out of the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. By the way, put yourself in this story this Christmas. You're just hanging out with your sheep. And suddenly the angel of the Lord shows up. This has got to be the most exciting night in your life ever. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened, rightfully so. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For I bring you good news of great joy, which will be what? For all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And then suddenly there appeared and at, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, by the way, everywhere, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Now notice in this passage how the angels explain the wonderful actions of God, how they were being done for us. Here we see God announce that good news was being given for all people because a Savior had been born for them because God was pleased to bless the entire earth. The truth we see in this message is that Jesus, in Jesus, God is for us. Now what does that mean to us here today? It means to the alcoholic and those addicted to other substances this Christmas season, down the street or maybe even in this room today, he has pronounced good, good news. It means to those who are depressed and downtrodden in our town, he has called for joy. It means to thieves and, lives and uh, liars and adulterers and all other sinners that are separated from God, he has proclaimed a Savior. It means to every soul on every continent, in every village, in every nation, in every tribe, tribe and tongue on the earth, God has pronounced that he was pleased to give them a son. Now, we need to hear this today because for some reason in our society, we have heard so often the wrongful preaching of prosperity gospel, of health and wealth gospel that says that if you truly love God, everything in your world will always work out with you. Well, there's no such thing. Jesus made it very clear that we can be followers of Jesus and endure hardships on this earth. But just because we want to push away, pull back from a false health and wealth doctrine doesn't mean that we should abandon the fact that God does love us and that God is for us and that God is near us today. And this may cause you to ask, why would God do all this for humanity? Why would he do this? Well, it's not because he needed to redeem us, to satisfy some loneliness in himself. It wasn't that he didn't want heaven without us. God is completely satisfied and sufficient in himself. But rather, he chose to be good and gracious to humanity because that's just who he is. The scriptures make it clear that God's actions are first for his glory. And in the gospel, we see that his actions are for our good. So even though we don't deserve it, our Savior being our wonderful counselor can only be explained by the fact that God, simply in the gospel, has chosen to be a God who is for humanity. And what does Romans chapter 8 verse 31 tell us? If God is for us, then who can be against us? 
Some of you here today, Christians, you need to be reminded that in the middle of your relational struggles, God is for you. In the middle of your financial struggles, God is for you. In the middle of your emotional struggles, God is for you. In the middle of your dark places here today, in the middle of your worst Christmas, in the middle of your worst nights, that there is a God who loves you, who is for you, and he proved it by sending his son this Christmas. Let's praise Jesus this morning that God is for us. Man, I'm preaching myself happy this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm getting fired up here. So if you're here today, our first truth you need to know about our wonderful counselor this Christmas is that God is for us. The second thing that it speaks to us here today is not only is our wonderful counselor for us, but also our wonderful counselor is near us. We need to celebrate Jesus this Christmas because he is near me. As we look again at these verses leading up to the names of God in this passage, We see the intimate working of God in the lives of his children. Here in Isaiah chapter 9, we see God by sending a Savior, the Messiah, who was going to be the one who would shine a light on people living in darkness. He would be the one to break the yoke on the people's back. He would be the one to fight a battle and win a a fight, a battle we could not win. All these actions speak about a God who is near to us. You can't break the bondage off people without stepping into their mess. You can't fight a battle with them without stepping into the fight. All over Scripture, we see that the idea of a counselor was someone who is close to you. It's a friend. It's a confidant. The people who that you can step aside to a private room and hear their words and their advice. The imagery we get here by Isaiah referring to God as a wonderful counselor is somebody who is wonderfully near and accessible to his people. Now, We've all experienced how the nearness of others can be good to us in moments of brokenness. Even those who are loners in this room, the Bible makes it clear that we need other people. And it's one of the greatest benefits of the church, by the way. That's why you need to come to church on Sunday mornings. It can't be an option. It should be regular routine. It's why you need to go beyond the Sunday morning gathering to a life group. Something you'll hear me say around here at Enon Baptist Church is that at church, everybody doesn't have to know everybody, but everybody needs to know some somebodies, okay? That's bad grammar. It's good theology, all right? You need to know people. But over and over again, the Scripture also points to the fact, as good as it is to have people around you, you also need to have the nearness of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, King Solomon spoke about the goodness of the nearness of others, but he also alluded to the fact that we need God's nearness first and supremely. It says, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will be lifted up by his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is no one there to lift him up. And again, by the way, that's why you need to be in a life group. We want to minister to you well, but if we don't know if you're sick, if we don't know you're struggling, then we can't minister to you. So that's why that's important. But it says, But woe to the one who falls, who there's no one to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can, if one can overpower him who's alone, two can resist him. But then he points to our need for God here. As he gives this picture of a cord of three strands. It says, A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Solomon is essentially saying here that God is the third cord that truly holds everything together. He is saying that the nearness of people is good, but God's nearness first is best. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 spoke about how hopelessness, the root of hopelessness, is the distance from God. He says, remember that you were at a time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, 
strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. You hear that? Hopelessness, the core root of hopelessness is to have no God. Now, there are people who put their hope in so many different things, even those in our secular day and age that want to deny God. If you really press into where do they get their assurance? That they're, they're hoping in something. They're putting faith in something. And if you really start getting down to the nitty-gritty of it, you find out that people are putting their hope in things that they cannot truly count on. You can't put your true hope in man's means or even in science's means. Ultimately, the only thing that gives true hope is to have hope in a good and loving God. Paul says here, basically, that the symptoms of your hopelessness is often due to the separation from your God. But here we see in Isaiah 9, we see a Christmas that is clear with the gospel. It's the fact that God is saying that he is your wonderful counselor. He is bringing God near you. And the nearness of God to his people has always been the hope of the Christmas message. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, just a few chapters before this, he makes this statement. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, speaking of the Messiah. And behold, a virgin, a virgin will be with you and, and, and will be with child and bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. That means what? God is with us. The Bible makes it clear that God's people experience his nearness through his word, through his spirit, and through his church. And I want you to know here today, church, that no matter what situation you may go through, if you know God is with you in the middle of it, it totally flips that situation. Just this last week, I had the great privilege of going and visiting uh, one of our senior adult church, church members that is partially homebound, a man uh, named Johnny Mize. Some of you know Brother Johnny. He is a funny guy. Uh, he had a twin brother that passed away uh, several years ago. But Brother Johnny, uh, in an accident, a couple different accidents, he actually lost two of his index fingers. Uh, but the story goes that regularly when they would come to church to play tricks on the pastor and even Brother Ken, they would swap wives and put their hands in their pocket to see if anybody could tell which one was which. I mean, these guys are little funny goofballs here. Anyway, but a joyful, joyful man. But in just the last couple of weeks... Not only has he already lost his twin brother, he, he lost his wife of decades of years. And then just this past week, he lost his older brother. I came by to visit with him, and he wept as he talked about, I'm basically the last one left. Now, he has so many family and friends and kids and grandchildren who are taking care of him now. But as far as those whom he grew up with, he is alone. He's the last one there. And I sat down with him. I said, Brother Johnny, I, I, I can't even imagine what you're going through. But I just want to remind you that Jesus knows where you are and he sees exactly what's going on. And he sat up in his chair and he kind of poked his head up a little bit. And with tears in his eyes, a joyful smile came across his faith. And he said, Pastor Zach, I know that Jesus is with me. He's the one who always gets me through this. He, says, I, he said, I've never heard his audible voice, but I regularly hear his whispers. And he said it with joy that I regularly hear his whispers. Brother Johnny was able to go through this situation in life because he hears the voice of God, because the nearness of God is near to him. And so church, this Christmas, I want to ask you this question of all the things that you could do, of all the, the areas you could pursue, of all the family events and everything else, are you hearing the whispers of God? And if you're not here today, maybe you're distanced from your counselor. Maybe it's been a long time since you sat with your king. Or maybe here today you don't know him. But the Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 8, to draw near to God and He will draw near to you. 
Church family, I would encourage you to maybe go even this afternoon. Take your Bible, take a bag chair, go out into the woods or go somewhere private and just sit down with God and say, God, I want to know you this Christmas. So again, today, this Christmas season, we can celebrate because we have a God who is ultimately near us. We have a God who is for us. But then finally, this Christmas, we should celebrate Jesus as our wonderful counselor because it reminds us that God is above us. He is above me. The last truth that we need to be reminded of concerning the truth that Jesus is our wonderful counselor pertains to his wisdom and abundance of knowledge. Now we all understand that one of the best things a counselor can do is give you instruction and bring you advice and wisdom. That's the exact same thing that God can be for those who know him. Psalms chapter 16 verse 7 says the psalmist speaks about how God has counseled his mind which means to give wisdom and instruction He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. He said, I bless the Lord that God is speaking and leading my life. The reason why the psalmist was blessing God for his counsel is because there is none wiser or greater to receive instruction from than the one true God. I love what Isaiah says about God in Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 14. It speaks about the greatness of the wisdom of God. It says, who has measured the waters? In the hollows of his hand. Who has marked off the heavens by the span. And calculated the dust of the earth by measure. And weighed the mountains in a balance. And the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord. Or as his counselor has informed him. With whom does he consult and give understanding. And whom taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. And the rhetorical answer to that is none. There are none, O God. None has instructed you. None has informed you. No one else knows the weight of the dust on the earth. No one else knows the the, the measure of the waters on the earth. O God, you are the one true God. And I will say this to you here today. The same God who knows every grain of sand on the shore is the same God who knows exactly what's going on in your life. And he sees you exactly where you are. Like we said before, if everything changes when you know that Jesus is near you. Because him being your wonderful counselor means that not only is he close to you, but he's also got the experience to lead you. you got a God who is above you. you got a God who is greater and bigger and can walk you through whatever situation in life that you may be enduring. A couple years ago, I was living in Arkansas and I was invited to go duck hunting by a friend of mine. Duck hunting is a big deal in Arkansas. And uh, I knew that it was a lot more serious than what I knew. And I said, well, what time are we meeting? He said, we're going to meet at 2.30 a.m. And, and at first I laughed. And then he didn't laugh. He was being completely serious. And I was like, man, this is, this is serious business. I don't even know. Like, do you go to bed? I, I don't Anyway. So we get there. We travel to this place. We get in a, a duck boat on this Arkansas River that was a very swampy and trees and everything. This is not like going to Smith Lake. This was like a creek, a river. And we put this boat in there. And because it's so cold, I have to lay down in the boat. I can't even see where we're going. I'm just looking at the driver. And I've got everything covered except my eyes. And he is navigating this boat with nothing more than a spotlight. And every now and then, he's just shining it in front of him as we're going about 35 miles an hour in this duck boat. And, and I remember looking at him, he said, and he must have seen it in my eyes. And he said, hey, man, we're good, we're good. I'm like, hey, I don't feel good. You know, anyway. <laughs> then we pull up on this bank, and then we walk through the woods, and then we wade off into a swamp. And if you know anything about swamps, once you walk out there a little bit, everything looks the same. I was like, how, how do, do we, what, what happens if we get lost? What happens, and in my mind, I'm thinking about those shows like Dual Survivor and stuff. Like, what do you do if you have to live in the swamps, you know? And 
Finally, when we get to the duck hole, he looks at me, and I've asked a bunch of questions. He said, Zach, let me just tell you this. Calm down. I've been doing this my whole life, and everything will be okay. And there was something comforting about that, the fact that he was experienced, that he grew up doing this, and that everything was going to be okay. Today, knowing that Jesus is above us, that Jesus is highly experienced, changes everything. When Jesus is near, you don't have to fear because you know that he knows what is on the horizon. You might not know, but you know he knows. When Jesus is near, you don't have to fear because you know, because he knows what you are wading off into. When Jesus is near, you don't have to fear because he knows how to get you to a safe place even when you do not. And then when Jesus is near, you don't have to be afraid whatever problem you may face because Jesus already knows the answer. Now, some of you here today, you need to know that God's sending a Savior to us, which is what we celebrate this Christmas, wasn't just to provide a way to Him in the glorious hereafter, but it was also for Him to be near to us in the nasty here and now. We need to know that Jesus being our wonderful counselor means that He is supremely qualified. He is indefinitely experienced. He is highly motivated and He is absolutely available. He is far above us in all things because He is God. We must remember that before He came humbly in a manger, He was exalted in heaven. Before he was held in the arms of Mary, he held the planets in orbit. Before he adorned human flesh, he was robed in power and in might. This Christmas, we should rightfully celebrate our wonderful counselor because he is king of kings and lord of lords. This Christmas, we need to be reminded that God is for us, that he is near us, and that that God is above us. And so that we can rightly join with the angels and sing, Hark the heralds, angels sing, glory to our new born king. Let's give him praise and glory here today. Now church family, I love to preach this. I preach myself happy here today. But can I say something to you here today? It's all just preaching. And that's all just claps and amens. If you've never had the Savior, your king, come and sit with you. If you've never had an appointment with your counselor, with your wonderful counselor. Some of you this morning, you feel very much alone and you are a follower of Jesus. For some reason, you've bought into some lie that God is against you, that God can't be trusted. And I want you to believe here today that the Savior of the world stepped into this world to be for you, to be near you, to be above you, to walk with you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So this morning, God may not change the situation that we're in because this world is broken. One day God's going to do away with all this and one day God's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes but He can change you in the middle of the situation. He can give you hope in the middle of hopelessness. He can give you light in the middle of darknesses. darkness. He can give you freedom in the midst of prison. So right there where you are today, I just want to ask every one of you who are heavy-hearted and burdened, would you just be reminded today on the authority of Scripture, that Jesus came to be your wonderful counselor. And maybe you just need to run to Him and go sit with Him here today. He invites you to come. He invites you to come this Christmas. Let your heart be restored in Him. you ever had revival moments in your heart and life? Maybe it's time for a revival moment. I remember I was about 20. I was in my first student pastor position at Farmstead Baptist Church in Jasper, Alabama. And I had not got that rule balance down yet of what it meant to minister to others but also to fill my own soul and minister let the Lord minister unto me 
I felt very distant from the Lord, but I had a friend of mine give me a CD of a song. It was written by Shane and Shane. It was called Yearn. And I put the song in on my way home one night, and the course of the song says, Lord, I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you. And I felt it in my soul. I was like, yes, God, that's what I need. I need you. I need to be filled up with you afresh and new. By the time that I got home, the song was ending, and I pressed play again. I pulled into my little driveway there, and I opened up the doors of my truck, and I stepped out into my driveway there. I turned up the music as loud as I could do it, and I just screamed unto the Lord, Lord, I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you. And I could feel the Spirit of God filling my heart anew. The desperation of our pursuit of God absolutely impacts the, the, the experience of the presence of God in our life. Maybe you need to pursue Him today. Maybe you need to go meet with your counselor. But then lastly here today, maybe you don't know your counselor. Maybe you've never heard the whispers of your king telling you, I love you. Telling you, I'm near to you. I've forgiven you. You are my child. Maybe this morning you need to know that. There's something about the silence that hits a room like this right here that you can recognize that God is here. That God is speaking. I want to ask you here today, if you don't know Jesus, right there where you are, would you bow your head? Saints, would you pray with me? If you don't know Jesus here today, would you call out to him right there where you are? Say, dear Jesus, I don't really know you. Maybe you know church. Maybe you know Christmas story. Maybe you don't really know Jesus. Say, Jesus, I don't know you. But I want to know you. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and you rose from the grave. So Jesus, I give my life to you. Save me. Save me, O oh Lord. Save me, O oh God. With every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around, this is just between you and I. If you ask Jesus to save you this morning, I'm not going to embarrass you or put you on the spot in any way. It's between you and I. But if you ask Jesus to save you, would you just glance up at me? Just make eye contact with me here today. Is that you here this morning? Just look up at me right there where you are. Keep your eyes on me just for a moment. Or is that you here today? This morning, is that you? Amen. Others in this room, is that you here today? Say, Pastor Zach, I need to know a wonderful counselor. I want to know Jesus. Amen. Others in this room here today, is that you? I'm going to challenge you here this morning. If you ask Jesus to save you, there's a couple of ways that you can make that public because you need people to help you take those next steps. You can take that card. You can mark on that card in front of you and place that in one of our connect boxes as we leave here today. It just says, I gave my life to Christ today. You can come and let one of our pastors know who our pastors are going to come begin making their way up front right now. You can let one of them know. Or you can come visit me out here at this welcome center in a few moments and you can let somebody know there. But I encourage you, maybe let the person who invited you know. But let somebody know that you gave your life to Jesus. And the last thing I want to ask you this morning if you're here today and you say, Pastor Zach, I need a fresh meeting with my wonderful counselor. With every head bowed, every eye closed, would you just look up right now? Amen. Amen. Eyes all over the room. Is that you here today? Amen. 
Amen. Well, can I say something? Amen. You can do it right now. We're going to sing and worship unto the Lord. And so cast all your worries, cast all your fears. If, if you need somebody to pray with you, again, we need people. There's no embarrassment in that. It's not what kind of church we are. Our pastors will be up front. If you just need somebody to pray with you, you come forward as we sing. Or you worship the Lord or kneel right there where you are. You pursue the Lord. However God is calling you to respond, you respond. If you'd like to join this church, whatever you need to do in these next few moments, would you respond? Lord, we love you. We praise you. I pray in Jesus' name. God, would you move in the hearts and lives of your people for your name and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand if you need to come? Come now as we sing.